Two quick notes before we begin. First of all, appreciate your reading today, Paul. Uh, just want to remind the guys that uh, we, I've got a new sign-up sheet there, and if you could sign up to do scripture reading over the next two months, that would be great. And then one other uh, brief comment on a line in uh, uh, the second hymn that we sang where it says, The Baptism of the Heaven Descended Dove. Um, there are different understandings of the role of the Spirit in the ministry to believers. Um, I think 1 Corinthians 12, 13 makes it clear that there's a one-time baptism of those who trust Jesus into the body of Christ. And so there are ongoing ministries of the Spirit, um, but it might be better to refer to them not as baptism. But the understanding would be that there is a ministry of the Spirit that we are asking for um, as we prepare our hearts to receive God's word. And I think that point comes across clearly in that song. So I just wanted to make that comment uh, as well. Um, Mark chapter 3. When is your family not your family? Family comes in both expected and unexpected ways. The ways that we expect family to come by birth, have children, or someone that we're related to by blood has children, right? And so then there's aunts and uncles and grandparents and great uncles and aunts and all those sorts of things, right? Family comes by marriage. Two people join together who weren't formerly family. Now they're connected. But family also comes outside of those two scenarios. There can be family that becomes your family by choice, right? What's the basis of that choice? Sometimes it's something like adoption. Uh, sometimes it's something like friendship that becomes very close we would want to think about what is the basis of that choice. We often would think the basis of that choice would be uh, shared interests or similar personalities. And I think with friendships, it tends to be some of those things. Although the reality is our best friends tend to not be identical to us. They'll come alongside and contradict us when we need to say, hey, we should go a different way. Or they will have different interests than us. And we, we learn to appreciate things about them and they about us. In our passage today, though, the basis of the choice was not about shared interests or hobbies or common life experiences or just where you are. It was what God was going to do with certain people. The test was whether someone actually followed Jesus. So we see in this passage Jesus calling his disciples. He chooses them to be very close to him. And then there are other people who have chosen to follow after Jesus as well. And Jesus places a priority on them over against those who are actually his family by birth. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But I think the point of this from Mark 3 is that you and I need to follow Jesus if you claim to be his family. The passage starts by Jesus calling his disciples, continues with a conflict about the nature of him casting out demons, and then moves to the question of who he prioritizes. So we're going to look at each of these scenes, and as we've said in previous weeks, Note the different responses of each group to Jesus and his ministry. The first point, I think, comes from verses 7 through 12. Following Jesus as family is not rejection, nor admiration, nor even just agreeing with facts about him. So rejection, where does that come from? Well, that comes from the passage that we looked at last week. The leaders, verse 6, the Pharisees and the Herodians were conspiring how to kill him. So the leaders were trying to kill Jesus, so he withdraws to the Sea of Galilee. This was not out of fear. This was not out of expediency. 
this was because the time for him to be crucified had not yet come in God's plan. And so his ministry was going to continue. So instead of staying at the scene of the conflict, like in another occasion where the, they seek to stone him and he escapes from their hands, he goes and does ministry in another place for a time. So the leaders are trying to kill Jesus. So I think that one's pretty obvious. Following Jesus' family, you're not going to be trying to kill him, which is what the Pharisees and the Herodians were trying to do. But then there's the question of these large crowds that are following after him. Are they behaving as Jesus' family? They seemingly followed Jesus, but primarily were interested in being healed through miracles. We see in verse 10, he healed many, with the result that all who had afflictions pressed around in order to touch him. In verse 8, it said, A great number of people heard of all that he was doing and came to him. So people were coming from all over, not just where the Sea of Galilee was, but from the south and from the west and from the northwest and from all over. People were coming to see Jesus. They wanted to be healed. But what priority had Jesus placed on his ministry in chapter 1? As gracious and merciful as he was to heal people, he said to the disciples, I need to go to these places because I need to preach to them. And what was the message that he preached in chapter 1? The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe this good news, right? And so his message, his task was to preach. Did he heal? Did he show mercy? Did he show favor? Absolutely. But his goal was first and foremost to make sure that people were called to follow after God in his kingdom. And so the crowds, though they followed Jesus because they wanted healing, by and large they ignored the teaching and the message that he was bringing. So they weren't really following him as family either. And then we see a third group. Verse 11, the unclean spirits, the demons that are possessing the people, that he's casting out of people and freeing them from their power. They would fall down before him and shout, you are the son of God. That's true. But I don't think any of us would say that the demons were following after God as though they were his family, as though they belonged to him, as though they were genuine followers. And so following Jesus as family, as a true disciple, means something more. It's clearly not rejection. It's not just following because you want something. And it's not even just following because you can say things that are true. What's Jesus' response? We would think Jesus would say, yes, I am, to the demon's proclamation that he's the Son of God. But he silences them. He orders them not to speak of the people of who he is. Why? The passage doesn't say, but my assumption would be Jesus does not want the demons being his messengers because in the next little section, you know what he's going to do? He's going to call the disciples, 12 ordinary men, to go and be his messengers and proclaim him to the people, both during his ministry and after he was gone. So it wasn't something that he was going to let the demons do, though they knew the truth about who he was and were not blind to it the way that so many were. It wasn't their job, and he wasn't going to permit them to do it. So following Jesus' family is not rejection, not mere admiration, certainly not just knowing facts about him. What, about, what does this mean for us? Do you and I reject Jesus? Many people in our world do. Jesus was a myth. Jesus was a historical figure who died like any other person. Jesus is in the same category as Santa Claus, a fantasy that parents tell children to try to have control over them. 
be good because Santa Claus is watching, follow Jesus so everything works out well in life. People view it those sorts of ways. And if that is the way that you view it, then I think you would have to put yourself in the category of, like the Pharisees and the Herodians, those who rejected Jesus, those who were turning against him. Why would someone turn against Jesus? Well, all of us have an innate recognition that God has made the world and that there is right and wrong in the world. Now, we try to deny that. We come up with all sorts of reasons why it's not the case. But all of us deep down know God made the world and there's right and wrong in the world. Why would we reject the reality of who Jesus is? Because we don't want to obey him, right? If I acknowledge God is in some way responsible for my existence on this earth, then I owe some measure of allegiance to him and obedience. And if I don't want that, I'm going to try to explain God away. In the same way God reveals right and wrong to us through our conscience, why would we try to suppress that? Because... If I know that there's right and wrong, but it's different from what I want to do, I have to explain it away and ignore it. Maybe you say, I would never reject Jesus. In fact, I think he was an amazing teacher. He was a great man. He was even a prophet, perhaps. Many scholars, even those, some of those who've translated the scripture into our language, admired Jesus as a historical figure or thought he said some remarkable things, but didn't really want to follow him. They'll say, all right, what can you give me? You can give me a moral code to live by. There were people who were that way in the founding of our country. I own a moral code to live by, so let's take the teachings of Jesus, forget all the miracle part, and just take the be kind to your neighbor part, and we'll try to live by that. The problem with that, and the the example I'm about to give, there are flaws in it in that these aren't the only three options. But it's been said that your response to Jesus, your assessment of him, is that he is either a liar or a lunatic or the Lord. If he's a liar, he can claim to be God, but he's lying. He's just confused, right? If he's a lunatic, he's just crazy. But if he's Lord, you have to obey him. Now, are there other things that we could add to that list that don't start with L? Absolutely. But the reality is, it comes down to other assumptions about Jesus. He's a good man. He's a teacher. He's a historical figure. He's someone that said some interesting things. Or is he Lord? I'm going to obey him. It's, you, there needs to be more than just admiration. Do you know facts about Jesus? This is the one where I think people who are connected with church fall into a, a trap of thinking that because I can answer a lot of questions about the Bible, that must mean I have a relationship with Jesus. Here's the very sobering passage from the book of James that argues against that. The demons know that he is God and tremble. So exactly what we see here. If a demon condemned for from long ago, like it says in Second Peter and other places, and outlined in Revelation what's going to happen with them, if they can know the facts about who God is, but still be condemned, we would do well to consider that a relationship with God is more than just knowing facts about him. None of these things are the right response to Jesus. None of these put you in the category of those Jesus considers as his family. Following Jesus as family means being a disciple. We see the example of him calling the 12 disciples in verses 13 through 19. He goes on the mountain, and he summons the disciples he wanted, and they came. 
he calls 12 disciples. There's comments on some of them or things to note about them. Simon, he called Peter. He changes his name. James, son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, he gives them a phrase to describe them, sons of thunder. They were impetuous, it seems. They were emphatic, fervent. Judas, the one who would betray him, verse 19, he calls him even knowing that he would eventually betray him. As we look down through the list, there are fishermen and tax collectors and political figures and unknown men, but he chose them for what he would teach and do through them, not necessarily for what they were in themselves. And so I think we see from this little section, the test of a disciple is not who you are in yourself. The disciples had many different backgrounds. It's not thinking God owed you something because he picked them, not the other way around. It's simply answering when Jesus calls and leaving what you were doing to follow him. Jesus called, uh, as we saw in chapter 1, Simon and Andrew and James and John. Hey, you guys are fishing? Come with me. This probably wasn't the first time they encountered Jesus as we put the accounts from all the Gospels together. And yet, when Jesus says, it's time, come with me, they left what seems to have been a profitable business. As some of you pointed out, if their father could hire servants to help bring in the fish, they were doing relatively well. They left all that and they went and followed Jesus. Levi was a tax collector. He was making good money, probably by cheating people like Zacchaeus, the other tax collector we see and is well known in the gospel accounts. And yet he leaves all that to come follow after Jesus. This passage says, he went up on the mountain and he summoned them and they came. A test of disciple is someone who follows Jesus when he calls. So do you and I respond to Jesus in this way? Have you started to, right? Because there has to be a beginning point. Sometimes we place too much emphasis on the beginning point. If you open up your Bible, you look at the front page of your Bible, uh, sometimes there will be a presented to, by, and on, and if you keep flipping, it will say maybe something about weddings and births and marriages and deaths and family records. And then, you know, mine has at the front of it something that says church record. When did you get baptized? When did you join a church? All those sorts of things. Sometimes people write down, this is the day I prayed. This is the time I prayed. If you lose that copy of the Bible or something happens, you hit your head, get a concussion, can't remember anything about the details, can you still have a relationship with Jesus? The answer is absolutely. There has to be a point that we start following Jesus, but the point is not always completely clear to us, right? I think uh, kids who grow up in church struggle with this. I know that I did when I was a kid. I remember praying a prayer when I was four or five. I remember going to church saying I wanted to get baptized when I was slightly older, maybe eight or nine. I remember after my grandpa, who was the pastor of the church that I grew up, after he died and a lot of things at the church were changing, I started questioning a whole lot of things about what I believed. Is this what the Bible actually says? You know, how do I, how do I think about life? Do I really have a relationship with God? I remember praying a prayer again when I was a junior in high school. And then I wouldn't say getting baptized again because you only get baptized once, right? Only one of them counts. It's not a thing that you should redo over and over, kind of like we were talking about with the hymn. But at which of those points did I begin to have a relationship with God? 
There's moments when I'm not entirely sure. But here's the important thing. Do you have a relationship with Jesus right now? The reason that that is important is because the disciples were those who were following Jesus, not those who followed Jesus, not those who, um, even for a long stretch. Why is that important? Because one of the people Jesus calls is Judas Iscariot. While he's supposedly following Jesus, another of the gospel reveals that he was in charge of the money for the disciples, money that people would give them for food and whatever, whatever other necessities, and he was stealing from it for himself. And then at the end, his greed drives him to betray Jesus to the religious leaders and says, I'll lead you to him. This is not something that caught Jesus off guard. But Judas goes out and in despair and in discouragement and in the assumption that he could never find forgiveness, he commits suicide. He didn't continue to follow after Jesus. Peter, another of the disciples, when faced with the test of, will you acknowledge me or turn away from me? He denies Jesus to the point that he's swearing in God's name. I never met him. Who are you talking about? And yet Jesus restores him to ministry. There are people who walked alongside the Apostle Paul. In one letter, he says, here are my fellow workers, including a man named Demas. And then later, I think it's in 2 Timothy, toward the end of his life, he says, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. Why am I mentioning all these things? You and I see a brief snapshot of someone's walk with God. Depending on where we encounter them in that, we could come to very different conclusions about whether or not they know God. In the end, God knows, you and I, not so much individually, but collectively as a church, affirm with someone, yes, you've said you follow Jesus, and it seems that you are, but even then, we're only making an educated guess. God knows that person's heart. There is hope for those that seem to have followed for a while and now are not, those that to this point have never yet followed, because look at someone like Paul, those who have turned aside, if they repent and come back, God forgives and God restores. But a disciple is someone who begins to follow and who continues to follow. Not without ups and downs because those certainly come into our lives. But the end result is someone who finishes by God's grace, who though they sin and stray and wander, sometimes for long stretches, by God's grace keeps coming back. That is the mark of someone who's a genuine disciple, someone who's a part of God's family. There are tests along the way. And so the third point is that following Jesus doesn't mean thinking that he is crazy or demon-possessed. Why do I say this? Well, in verses 20 through 30, we see a variety of responses to Jesus. He came home and the crowd gathered again to such an extent they could not even eat a meal. Why are the crowds so stirred up? Because when Jesus says to people, don't tell people about the miracle that I've done, I want you to go do this instead, they're not listening. The man that's healed of leprosy says, go to the temple, show yourself to the priest, be a witness to them. He says, no, I'm going to go tell everybody what happened. He didn't follow what Jesus said to do. Jesus urges the demons not to say, you are the son of God, but they continue doing that. 
We're going to see further examples of where people are healed and, and the crowds get stirred up. Jesus' purpose is not to stir up the crowds and become more and more popular. We talked about that in some of the first things we looked at in chapter 1. Jesus' point was to come and point people to God through his ministry and say, here is the gospel message that you need to submit to and to believe. But people have a variety of responses along the way. When his own people heard of his growing popularity among the crowds, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying he has lost his senses. Now, it is somewhat unclear here whether this is just Jesus' family, and if so, which of his family, but the reference a few verses later to his mother and to his brothers seems to imply that it's his mother and his brothers who are coming and saying, you're behaving in a crazy fashion. Why are you accepting the recognition of the crowd? Why aren't you just sending them away and saying, I'm just an ordinary carpenter? Why would you be going around teaching people as though you have authority? You're not trained as a scribe. You didn't grow up in the temple. You went there once when you were 12. How do you have the authority and the, the responsibility to go and, and have a following? You're not, you're not John the Baptist. You weren't called to be a prophet, were you? That seems to have been the response of Jesus' family. Uh, the Gospel of John says even his own brothers were not believing in him. And so it seems that they come and they're going to say, all right, enough of this. Let's be done with it. Send the people away. Why? Because they were saying he has lost his senses. I was thinking about this yesterday, and it is a fascinating thing that if Jesus' mother is among the kinsmen that are referred to in this verse, that she would be trying to stop him from doing his ministry. Because didn't she see him, all the things that happened around his birth? Didn't she remember the words that were spoken to her in the temple? Didn't she remember what happened when he was 12 and got separated? They found him teaching the scribes and Pharisees in Jerusalem. And yet, before we're too hard on her, for having a response of, this seems crazy what he's saying. Why, why would he possibly be acting in this way? Don't we do the same thing? There are clear and obvious things that God has said are true. And there are moments when we say, but Really? Did he really part the Red Sea? Did he really save Noah in the ark? Did he really feed the people in the wilderness? I mean, it just doesn't make sense. How, how could there be that many people? How could God take care of them through the wilderness? How could there have been giants? And did David actually defeat him? Or is there some other alternative explanation, like he was just a really tall guy who was kind of uncoordinated, so it wasn't really that big of a deal for David to defeat him? These are the explanations that people come up with in response to the miraculous things about what God has done. Mary and Jesus' brothers heard of or saw firsthand miraculous things that Jesus did, and yet there is that temptation to doubt and say, this is crazy, how could this be? They were not behaving as his family by calling him crazy in what they were doing. What's the response of the religious leaders? They go even further. You're not crazy, although it seems they allowed that as a possibility for the people in the crowd to believe as long as it discredited Jesus in his ministry. They seemed okay with that explanation, but they were convinced it was something even worse. You're not just crazy, you're possessed by a demon. He is possessed by Beelzebul. He casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. 
they're saying in essence, yeah, you know, Moses cast down his staff and it became a serpent, but so did Pharaoh's magicians. He's just like one of Pharaoh's magicians. He's in league with Satan. And then that's how he gets his power. Jesus' response is with some examples that show the foolishness of their accusation. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. I think it was Abraham Lincoln in the Gettysburg Address that alluded to this verse, right? But in context, it's not about political division. It's about the fact that if Satan is using his power as the basis of casting out demons who are accomplishing his purpose, that doesn't make any sense at all. Because if they're going and tormenting people and disrupting the ministry that God is doing and all of these sorts of things, then why would he make them stop? What, what, what would be the advantage? Jesus says further, if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he is finished. So how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided, it can't stand. If a house is divided, it can't stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he is finished. He says, no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. What's he saying? I am more powerful than Satan. I can compel him such that he has no choice in the matter, and then I can have control over all that seems to belong to him, right? Tie up the rich man, take all his stuff. Be more powerful than Satan, defeat his demons. That's the point that Jesus seems to be making. He speaks now of something that has created a lot of debate among people. He says, Truly I say to you, all sin shall be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin because they were saying... He has an unclean spirit. People argue about what this means. Is there an unpardonable sin? Sometimes it feels like that falls into the category of the sort of conversations people might have and uh, like school-aged children, could God make a rock so big he couldn't lift it? Right? Is there a sin so great he can't forgive it? I don't think that verse 29 is saying can't. I think it's saying won't. And that's an important distinction, right? It's not that Jesus, the ministry that he has, the sacrifice that he makes, what it accomplishes in God's kingdom is incapable of dealing with any and every sin. It's that the spiritual blindness that blasphemes God by saying his work and the work of his own son is the work of the devil and attributes it to Satan and his power that is a spiritual blindness and hard-headedness and rejection of God that unless turned from, there is no path to repentance. Right? And so how do we reconcile this with the fact that some of the Pharisees seem to have turned to Jesus? We see Nicodemus. We see um, Joseph of Arimathea. We see various ones who seem to turn and follow after Jesus. How, how do we understand those relative to those blaspheming against the Spirit? One possibility is that it wasn't the Pharisees themselves, but just the scribes who worked alongside the Pharisees. One is that it's only some of the Pharisees and not all of them. And the other is that he's saying, 
an implied condition, unless they turn, there will be no forgiveness. Whoever continues to blaspheme, there is no forgiveness for such a person. Regardless of the explanation we take of this passage, the point stands, if you attribute God's work to Satan, you cannot consider yourself to be one of God's followers. They're completely opposite and and incompatible. You can't call Jesus crazy and reject his work and say, but I'm family. You can't say, Jesus is doing a ministry by the power of Satan and say, I'm one of his followers, I'm family. That just doesn't work. You can't put those things together. So the crowds continue their admiration. They're so eager to be so close to Jesus that he doesn't even have an opportunity to eat. That's not a mark of true discipleship. It's a mark of excitement, right? But it's not, it doesn't meet the test of being a true disciple of Jesus. Calling Jesus crazy was not the right response from his family or even uh, friends or neighbors that come alongside them. Calling him demon-possessed is, again, certainly the recognition or rejection from the religious leaders. One point about this, they, these same scribes, what was the accusation they bring against Jesus later? Blasphemy. What was it that they themselves stood condemned of? Blasphemy. We tend to be blind to the sins that we are most guilty of and accuse them the hardest in other people even when they're not there. Which is why Jesus says in another place, he doesn't say, people take the phrase, don't judge, and they say, well, never, never make any assessment about anybody, never confront anybody about anything. But he says, an important follow-up to that phrase in the same context, by the standard by which you judge, it will be measured out to you. If there is no mercy towards you, how do you expect mercy from God? If there's no forgiveness for you, how do you expect forgiveness from God? If your standard of judgment is so high, and then we look at Jesus' standard of judgment and evaluation, his forgiveness, he's not saying you should be okay with sin. He's not saying you should never recognize that there is sin. But he is saying it's really easy for us to be blind to our sin and only see it in other people, and potentially come to a point like the Pharisees and religious leaders did, the scribes and everybody else, most of them were at a point where they saw what Jesus was saying and they saw what he was doing, and they were so convinced in their unbelief that they were right with God that they refused to acknowledge him, though the Son of God had taken flesh and was right there in front of them. By God's grace, may we not have that same sort of of blindness. What does it mean to then follow Jesus as family? Following Jesus as family means being with Jesus and doing God's will. We see this in the last few verses at the end of the chapter. Jesus is called by his family, verse 31, possibly to spend time with them because they're saying you're spending all the time with the crowds, but more likely be done with all this and come home. The crowd in their understanding of how family relationships work, expected Jesus to say, absolutely, all right, I'll come with you. We'll go spend time together. We'll we'll be done with this for now, or permanently. Jesus, surprisingly, turns and asks a question. Who are my mother and my brothers? We think, well, that's obvious. They're standing outside asking for you, right? 
But Jesus' question is not, who do I have a family relationship because of the normal ways of having a family relationship? Who am I connected to by blood? That's not really the question that he's asking. He's saying, who has the right to claim me as family? He's looking around at the people who are right there with him, listening to his teaching. Verse 34, looking about at those who are sitting around him. And then he said, Behold my mother and my brothers. But it's not just did you listen, but as the book of James and other places makes clear, it's do you then act on what you listen to, right? So there were people who were interested enough in Jesus to actually hear his teaching, not just ask for miracles. But then he says, those who do the will of God. He is my brother and sister and mother. It wasn't just those who claimed to be concerned about him, but rather those who were actually concerned about what he was concerned about, doing the will of God. And that characterized his ministry throughout the entirety of his ministry. I came to do the will of the one who sent me. Who then is Jesus' family? Those who do the will of the one who sent Jesus. Family comes in many different ways. Jesus' family isn't about being born in the same place at the same time, to the same social status, or any of those worldly markers for those we consider close to us. Jesus' family is about whether we spend time with him and seek to do God's will as he patterns for us and commands us. If we follow him in this way, you will have family who rejects you for following after Jesus. Now, I'm not saying give up the possibility that God can bring them to repentance. Why do I say that? One of Jesus' brothers is James. James ends up the pastor of the Church of Jerusalem and writing the book of James after Jesus' death. But during his ministry, it seems like there was no interest and only rejection of what he was doing. What does that mean? God may not save that person in your family right now, but he could save them later. So don't give up hope. And yet... If following Jesus comes at the cost of family relationships, Jesus is saying, you're my family if you do my will, the will of God. On the other hand, you may have former enemies who will become as family when God brings you and them to follow after Jesus. And that could take a really long time, right? Some of you pray for people that seem to have no interest in following after God. And then suddenly they trust Christ after a long period of time. Some of them may trust God after you die. Some of them may not trust God. And yet for those that God saves who were enemies, think about Paul. Think about if you're one of the people whose family got thrown in jail or even put to death or you lost everything because of Paul and he walks into where your church is assembling in somebody's house or wherever else. You going to want to sit by him? You going to want to listen to him teach the Bible after what he's done to your family? And yet a passage like this shows that Paul was more family to those people than family by birth that never followed after Jesus. Despite all the things that he had done. And this is hard. 
the story about Corrie ten Boom meeting one of the Nazi guards in the prison camp where her sister died through persecution and, and just mistreatment. It'd be really hard to see someone who's directly responsible for the death of someone in your family and say, I forgive you, and not just I forgive you, and we never have to talk again, but you are my family in Jesus. But that's the work that God does. So this passage asks us, are you part of Jesus' family? How do you view those who are actually your family and following Jesus? We tend to think, like we say the word church family, right? But we have in our minds, but the people who are my family by birth, they're always a little bit ahead, right? Let's say God gave you $500 and everybody in your family was doing okay and someone in your church family really needed help with groceries or something, are you going to say, well, I can't help you because you're not actually my family and they're my family and they might need it later. Or what about time? You say, well, we're going to spend time with family, right? This is the, the thing that the larger the church, I think there's more people in the church that do this, uh, particularly if it's a church that's more well off. But there are people who be like, well, we've got to spend time with family, right? We've got we to gotta go up to the lake. We've got to do this or that. We're not going to be with other people that we made a commitment to in connection with the church because we've got to do all these things with our actual family, right? There was a lady, sweet lady for the most part. Uh, she was in her 90s. And she would say, well, I can't come to church because I, I got this pain and, and I might cry out and disturb people in the service. And then she proceeds to tell me I got on the airplane and I flew down to somewhere, Mississippi or somewhere. And we had this memorial for my brother who died in World War II and, and we spent all this time and money and effort. What does that show? I'm not saying she was not a believer, but what does it show? It showed a priority for one thing over another, Right? Now, I realize there's limits to this, right? So if I say, commitment to your church family means we're going to have something every night of the week and you never spend any time with your family by birth or with your family that's your immediate family because we always got some activity going, I've kind of set us up for failure and for those two, two things to fight against each other, right? I'm not saying churches should do that. Sometimes they do that. Um, so they've said the path to being like family is to have a lot of activities for you to do and if you don't participate in the activities you're not acting like you're part of us I don't think that's the right way to set it up I think the test of it is asking ourselves honestly if someone who's sitting around you here in church had something going on good or bad would you be as excited for them or grieve alongside them or help them or enjoy something with them as much as someone who's your child or parent or brother or sister or some other connection like that. Not because the church is intended to replace all those family relationships, but just the practical reality that we help people when they're sick, come alongside them when they need encouragement, pray for one another, because those who follow Jesus are truly our family, even when our earthly family potentially abandons us 
or if they don't trust Christ, goes away from God for eternity. Now, that's a hard thing to wrestle with, right? Because it gets into questions of God's sovereignty and justice and our responsibility to proclaim the gospel and all of those sorts of things. But the people that you and I will spend eternity with are those who spend time with Jesus and follow after Jesus by doing God's will. We should want those in our family by birth to be part of that number by God's grace and plead with them and encourage them and pray for them and all those sorts of things. But at the same time, if I'm like, well, I'm going to call my brother on, my phone, on the phone, I'm going to help my sister with something, I'm going to do this or that. But people at church, I mean, it's enough if I see them on Sunday, right? It's enough if I see them maybe Wednesday too, right? There should be a deeper commitment among God's people because of a shared relationship with God through Jesus than just we talk for a few minutes once a week. Now that's hard, right? Because we all live, in some cases, kind of far apart from each other, right? So how do we accomplish that? Sometimes it's through mm, texting someone, here's a prayer request. Sometimes it's through a conversation on the phone. Sometimes it's making the effort to see each other face to face. Um, I'm not saying I'm doing any of this perfectly. It's something that I continue to think about what I need to do. But what, what do you need to do? And I'm not saying anyone is doing this terribly. I think a lot of us are, are probably doing a fairly good job of connecting with each other in these ways. But again, if family means those who are near Jesus in terms of spending time with them and following Jesus in terms of doing what God's will is as revealed through his words that we have recorded for us here, if we don't take the time to encourage each other along those lines, there will be some of us in the course of the next decade, 25, 50 years, who walk away. Why do I say that? I was looking through the, the, the record book for the church from a long time ago when I was trying to find some other paperwork and I came across it. Um, There were names on that list who were no longer part of the church fellowship because they had died or moved away. But there are also a lot of names on the list who are no longer part of the church because they didn't want to walk with God anymore. You and I can't ultimately control the direction of someone's life, but we do impact it. So what are each of us doing to impact whether someone is currently and continues to follow after Jesus? If we care about them as family, that changes our attitude and our perspective about how we approach it. Follow Jesus if you claim to be his family. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that it doesn't always just say easy things. In fact, a lot of times it says things that are hard for us to hear. Change our perspective should impact our attitudes and actions. Lord, I pray, as much as I would pray for each of us in the congregation to follow the truths that this passage is laying out, I pray for me, for our family, that you would help us to live this out. There's a strong pull in our world to say, 
here's what you have provided for us as far as resources. These are for us to enjoy. Here's what you have given us as far as time. It's for us to enjoy. Help us to be looking for opportunities to minister to all those who are here and others from our church family who aren't here right at the moment. And I pray that all of us will be thinking through what that looks like. Not to abandon our earthly families, we plead with you that those who do not know you would turn to Jesus. Or for those who seem to have walked with you for a while and currently aren't, they would turn back to you. We pray that you would also help us to see the fact that there is family, there is connection with God's people. If we're baptized by one spirit into one body, if we are called to treat one another as brothers and sisters, as fathers and mothers with all purity and respect and honor in the way that we relate to one another, it's not a one-for-one for for earthly families, but in some ways and in many ways, it is something even more amazing that people who are not family by natural ways of thinking continue to commit to be family to one another because we are joined in our relationship with you. Help us to live that out, Lord, we pray. Amen.